that God originally called Abraham while he was in Ur of the Chaldees and then repeated that call in Haran. The command from God was leave your country, leave your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So God chose a pagan man whose family was people who worshiped the moon and he called them to be the father of the Jewish nation. And Abram obeyed God as, he told, as God said to do it. He went up and left not knowing where he was going. It was God who brought him to, into the country and into the land that now they were having this uh, mock trial in. When Abraham got to the land, God didn't give him the land at that time. The only land he ever owned was a burial plot. <clears throat> God had given him the promise and the pledge that he would give him a land as a possession and countless descendants. But this man of faith got to see only the son of promise born to him at a very old age, that would be Isaac, and the rest of his descendants would then find themselves as aliens in a foreign land, enslaved and mistreated for 400 plus years. Stephen simply rounds out the number to 400. They were in Egypt 430 years. We do that too. In verses 7 and 8, God says he will judge the nation that holds the Jewish people in bondage. And after that, then they would enter the land and serve their God. Stephen then recalls in verse 8 that the sign of God's covenant with Abraham was circumcision. And in obedience to that, Abraham had his son Isaac circumcised the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and he became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Certainly, everyone listening in this courtroom would be nodding their heads in agreement, yes, 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 uh, unaware that he, Stephen is actually building a case against them. So that brings us to the next subject he brings, and that is the patriarchs, and specifically Joseph. The 12 sons of Jacob were revered by the Jewish nation. But how did these historical figures respond to their youngest brother, Joseph? In verse 9, we read, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Here at the start of the Jewish nation, these revered patriarchs were guilty of jealousy, of their brother Joseph, and they were actually fighting against the very God who had chosen them and had chosen Joseph. The rebellion and sin evidenced itself right from the start in this nation. Stephen is building his case to show how his accusers, also revered by the common people of their day, were guilty of these exact same sins of jealousy and false accusations and murder in their heart. Certainly Stephen bringing up the life of Joseph had the intent to try to get them to see how similar Joseph, who they admired, was to Jesus. Joseph and Jesus were both Jewish, both mistreated because of envy, both suffered because of false accusations and false testimonies against them. <laughs> Joseph falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and ended up in prison. Jesus condemned to die on the cross by men who lied about him. But God exalted him as he rose from the dead. Joseph was raised up so he could deliver all of his family and brethren from death by famine. Jesus was raised from the dead to deliver all who would believe in him from spiritual death. 
<clears throat> it was at the second visit down to Egypt that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. It will be at the second coming of Jesus the Messiah that the nation of Israel will finally recognize their Messiah, Zechariah 12 and Romans 9 through 11. So Stephen continues his review as to how Joseph asked for his father and all the relatives to come down to Egypt. He says 75 people in all. In Deuteronomy 10, 22, it says 70 went down to Egypt. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, it says 75, and Genesis 46 says 75. And in reality, both of these totals are correct. It just depends on whether you include Joseph's grandchildren or not, or simply how you tally up the numbers, whether you include Jacob, whether you include, it, it just, it doesn't matter. It's they're all the same, it's just how they broke it down. In verses 15 and 16, Stephen recounts the death of Jacob and all of their forefathers. And he mentions that they were removed to Shechem and laid at a tomb, which he says Abraham had purchased from the sons of Hamar. So this has obviously caused a great deal of confusion uh, to people because the Old Testament states Abraham was buried in Hebron in the cave he bought uh, at Machpelah from Ephraim in Genesis 23. Well, we know there are no errors in scripture, and certainly Stephen being led by the Spirit, and Luke, as well as a historian, did not make a mistake. It is Joseph and his brothers who were buried at Shechem. Now, you read this in uh, Joshua 24, that they brought Joseph and buried him in Shechem, and it's only here that we learn that it wasn't just Joseph, it was the rest of his brothers who were buried there as well. It is the fathers, uh, the, the patriarchs, who were removed to Shechem. Stephen then refers to Abraham as having purchased the tomb for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar in Shechem, in verse 16. Joshua, as I said, <clears throat> in verse, uh, chapter 24, 32, says it was Jacob who brought, bought the plot at Shechem. It is possible that Abraham bought it first, we know he was in Shechem. That's where he built an altar to the Lord in Genesis 12. Jacob could have had to repurchase it. That's one thought. Or it could be the distinct dual attention that uh, Stephen pays to history when he spoke of the two calls of Abraham, Mesopotamia, and Haran. And here he speaks of Abram's purchase as well as Jacob's purchase of Shechem. Stephen knew very well his Old Testament history Therefore, he must have had a purpose in saying what he said. And speaking of Shechem, one of the commentators said presently that Shechem was in the territory of the Samaritans, who were greatly hated by the Jewish people at that time. There was some purpose for Stephen to include all of this in his message, and all scripture is inspired by God. There is, it's infallible. We simply lack the information not given to us to make this very clear. But you know what, the Sanhedrin, if they would have seen anything in what he was saying out of line, they would have jumped up and said, you got that wrong. Uh, everybody continued to listen. There was no issue. We just don't have all of it to make sense to us. Rather than being guilty of blaspheming God, Stephen has clearly shown he affirms the work of God that God did starting with Abraham and the patriarchs. And that brings him to their next major hero, who is Moses. So, the majority of Stephen's time will be given to the life of Moses, and he will show them 
the great respect and awe he had for this wonderful man, Moses, and the law that was given to Moses. As the Jewish people multiplied in Egypt, we read there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. We read in verse 19 that this Pharaoh took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they were, would expose, that is, put out to die, their infants, and they would not survive. This is all seen in the book of Exodus as Pharaoh commanded the baby boys to be put to death. Moses was secretly kept by his parents for three months. And then they made a, a waterproof basket and placed him into the Nile River, doing all that they could do to try to spare this wonderful son that they loved. And in the sovereign plan of God, Pharaoh's daughter, with her maternal instincts, heard a baby crying and had them bring the basket and there was a sweet little baby boy. And so she took him and raised him as her own son. And I love the kindness of God that, you know, her, her, his sister was standing by do you need anything? And I'll go get a nurse, somebody who could feed this baby. And so his own mother got to nurse him for, I'm sure she took that for all it's worth, nursing him as long as she could. Anyways, Moses was raised in all the learning and education of the Egyptians. He refers to Moses as a man of power in words and deeds. That's certainly not how Moses saw himself as we see later in his life. But God had orchestrated all of these events to prepare Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, to be their human deliverer. And so around age 40, Moses leaves the palace and everything familiar and goes out to check on his kinsmen, the Jewish people. And while observing, he saw one of them being terribly mistreated and oppressed. And he jumped in to rescue the man and end up killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his kinsmen would then recognize him, that he could be their help, he could be their deliverer. But they didn't understand at all. On the following day, when he returned to see that there were two Jewish men fighting between each other, he tried to reconcile them in a peaceful way. And, you know, the response was, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? Whoa, Moses knew if this was known he better get out of town before Pharaoh kills him and so he left and he went to the land of Midian where he married had two children and took care of sheep for 40 years the point Stephen is making is that Moses was sent by God to be a deliverer and their rejection of him at this point in time brought 40 more years of hard labor and enslavement Moses was tending sheep for 40 years until the great I am spoke to him out of a bush that was burning, but not being consumed by the flame. So Moses shook with fear as he heard, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Take off your sandals, the feet uh, for your feet are standing on holy ground. God had seemed silent over the last 400 years. And as Moses is in the desert, he hears God speak. God had called him to be their deliverer. In verse 35 we read, This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. The place Moses stood in, as I said, was holy ground, and that was in the middle of a desert in Midian, not in the temple in Jerusalem. 
But the crucial point Stephen is trying to get across to the Sanhedrin is to see that it is this exact same sinful, proud, arrogant attitude throughout Israel's history. God sends a deliverer, and they don't need a deliverer. They're good. We don't need you. <laughs> and here they are again. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Moses is rejected by the Jewish people when he shows up. This is the reaction to all the deliverers that God sent to the nation of Israel. There's nothing new in their history. Moses did indeed lead the people out of Egypt with amazing signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, the Red Sea parting and them walking through, and yet the people rebelled against the Lord even as Moses was leading them out. And you think about it, they plundered the Egyptians, got all their money, and grabbed Moloch's tabernacle and other gods and took them en route out while the God of their fathers was delivering them in miraculous ways. The result was the adult generation who were led out by Moses all died in the wilderness, wandering for 40 years. Stephen lifted up Moses as a great deliverer for Israel. He was not guilty of blaspheming Moses at all. Rather, what he shows the Sanhedrin is that the nation of Israel was guilty of rejecting Moses. The big talk about how we love this man and admire him. That's not true. Just like they rejected Joseph, they did the same with Moses, and they did the same with Jesus. We read in verse 37, This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And that's exactly what God did when he sent Jesus, their promised Messiah and deliverer. And the response was the exact same rejection just as in times past. But this rejection wasn't of just a man. He was their Messiah. So again, we see Stephen trying to break through the hardness of the hearts of his accusers. These men who, who were so proud of their knowledge of the law, trying to get them to see, look at history. They did the same thing to Jesus that they, their forefathers did to Moses. Moses left the comforts of Egypt. Jesus left the glories of heaven. Moses was rejected at first just as Jesus. Moses took care of sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. Moses led his people out of bondage from Egypt. Jesus is the redeemer for sinners to redeem them from the bondage of their own sin. So now he moves into the law, which goes along with Moses. Now Stephen will show that he would never blaspheme the law of God. He believed the law of God to be the oracles, the living word of God. God is the author of the law. Angels were the mediators in some way, while Moses was the human recipient. And in this history review, Stephen reminds the Sanhedrin that their fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt, verse 39. It's so hard to fathom that while Moses is up on the mountain, being given the law of Moses, that the people are asking his brother Aaron to make an idol for them. Their rejection of Moses as their deliverer and their leader led to their rejection of the law. The law wasn't even finished in their hands yet, and they're already rejecting. Moses' brother Aaron accommodates the people with the golden calf. Then the people actually brought sacrifices to this calf. This was a god that they had been exposed to for a couple hundred years in Egypt. And this idol could do nothing to help them. 
they had witnessed with their own eyes the miraculous power of God to help them and rescue them from the, the army that was coming to destroy them, who all drowned in the sea. They had seen this power of God, and the Moses was their deliverer from Egypt, and yet here they are committing this sin. Again, we see the truth that miracles do not cause people to believe if their hearts are cold and hard to the truth. It doesn't matter. People can rise from the dead. Hard hearts. Don't care. These proud Sanhedrin boasted of their knowledge and awe of the law, but they were just like their forefathers in rejecting it. God could have destroyed the whole nation back then, but he didn't. 3,000 died in judgment that day with the idolatry. We read, though, in verse 42, But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. The people wanted to serve and worship idols. And God, you know what he did? He gave them over to do what they wanted to do. Sound familiar? Romans? You know, God gave the light of creation, the light of a conscience in your heart. Man turns away, suppresses the truth of everything around them, and God turned the Gentile world over to do the evil things that are in their hearts to do. So lest you think this was just a Jewish problem, I remind you, this is the rebellion of everyone in the human race, Jew and Gentile alike. <clears throat> so Stephen goes on now to quote from two of the prophets who rebukes Israel again for their idolatry and rebellion. And that brings him to the tabernacle and the temple. <clears throat> Again, Stephen is accused that he blasphemed the temple, a place of worship of the Jewish people they revered so much. So he reviews the history of the tabernacle in the wilderness. God gave such specific design of every detail about that. It was a pattern to be followed like the one in heaven. And they had this with them through the time of the conquest of the land with Joshua, all the way through King David. And then... Solomon, King David's son, built the temple. And even King Solomon said in 1 Kings 8.27, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. <clears throat> and Stephen quotes from Isaiah, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool for my feet. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? In reality, it was the Sanhedrin that blasphemed the temple by thinking God was confined to it. Solomon and Isaiah made it clear that God was greater than any temple. It was only a symbol of his presence. Now comes the big bomb in this courtroom scene that he's been building up to for his whole point for this discourse. And we see his final point. The true blasphemers are revealed in verses 51 through 53. <clears throat> you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have become now, you have now become, who have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. This is the big bomb. He drops in this courtroom and his accusers were obstinate, they were stiff-necked just like their fathers. Whether it was Joseph or Moses or David or any of the prophets, they were all received with rebellion and defiance. 
They took such pride in the fact that they were physically circumcised as God had commanded. Yet that was only meant to be a picture of a circumcised heart, that the sin had been cut away. But these men were unclean and they were unforgiven, just like the Gentile nations around them. And that brings us to the first martyr in the rest of this chapter. The response of the Sanhedrin, it's amazing Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. No doubt they were listening carefully, following Stephen throughout his whole discourse, but when they heard this accusation made to them, they were literally sawn in two. That means they were cut apart, ripped open to reveal that they were the hypocrites, they were the blasphemers, and they couldn't take it. And even though the light came in and shone right in their wicked, sinful hearts, they had to get rid of the light. That's what they did with Jesus. Well, snuff it out. Same thing. They are so enraged by Stephen's accusations. They start gnashing their teeth at him. One can't help but think of the Revelation, the book of Revelation that we studied, where God is pouring out his wrath in the bowls of judgment. And people are angry at him. They do not repent. They're gnashing their teeth, they're gnawing their tongues. They'd rather the rocks fall down and kill them than turn and repent. <clears throat> Stephen's audience has the same reaction. They show extreme anger towards God as they refuse to repent, even after this truth has been clearly given to them. This same group of men had heard the gospel at chapter 4, chapter 5, and now it was Stephen. The willful decision to harden their hearts caused their hearts to be hardened even more. That is a biblical truth. Paul warned about this in Romans 11. Remember, he cited the example of Pharaoh, who hardened his heart with Moses, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the author of Hebrews gives a warning, don't harden your heart. There is a point of no return where God will no longer deal with a person. When I read about these men gnashing their teeth, I couldn't help but think about that as the expression you hear about hell, where there's suffering in hell. In Matthew 13, it says about hell as a place of a lake of fire where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I used to think <clears throat> the gnashing of teeth was because of the physical agony and pain experienced in hell. But it goes far beyond that. Because along with the physical suffering of hell, and the absence of God's presence, there will be the frustration and bitterness of endless anger and hatred and rage towards God because they are condemned to this place. There will not be any remorse for sin or sorrow because they've rejected and spurned the love that God offered them in their human life. There will be anger, so much anger that it shows up in the same way it showed up in the Sanhedrin, gnashing their teeth in anger. All of the devout religious people through all of the ages who, who denied themselves in this life and thought that their own goodness was going to get them to heaven are going to be enraged with God as they are condemned in this place of suffering. You know, you think about sorrow over sin. Sorrow over sin is a gift from God. That is repentance. He is the one who grants repentance. He is the one who deals with people who are dead in their trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. 
It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. So to believe, to have the faith, to believe this message, to believe and to have sorrow over your sin, that is the gift of God. People who rejected this gift and are in hell are not going to have sorrow in hell about the fact that they didn't respond to the light around them or listen to their sister or their brother or their parents. No, it's going to be rage and anger and hatred. So, a spiritually dead person can never make themselves alive. It is the gift of faith to believe the gospel. The question is, have you believed the gospel? Or are you falsely assuming that the good works that you do and the devotion that you have to your particular church are sufficient? Be careful that you are not the one who is deceived, that you don't harden your heart to the real truth of the gospel message. What a contrast to that courtroom scene with Stephen. If you could have seen there at that moment, here's Stephen calm, full of the Holy Spirit. These men are enraged. They're dragging him out of the city, out of the courtroom scene, filled with hatred. And then you just have this little cameo reference to, there was a man there named Saul, and everybody put their outer garments at his feet. And so as they pick up stones and start stoning him, you know, Stephen had listened to the teaching of the apostles. He knew how Jesus responded on the cross. Oh, that's how I'm supposed to respond. With the help of the Holy Spirit, he asked for these men's salvation. He prayed for them that the Lord wouldn't hold that against them. And as he's falling um, down on his knees as the stones are bringing him to death, he sees the Lord in heaven standing, the perfect sacrificial lamb, who we read, sat down at the right hand of God. It always makes me cry as he's standing. So pleased, a standing ovation for the very first martyr coming home. And Stephen led the way for millions. And you know what? We have brothers and sisters all over the world right now who are dying just like Stephen for their faith. And you know, one day it will be here. It's very likely. But we need to live for him now. <laughs> one day we may be asked to die for him, but for now, we need to live for him. So in an instant, he was with the Lord. No soul sleep. No holding place to get to maybe later. He was with the Lord. When you're absent from this body, you are present with the Lord. So what a legacy he leaves for us to know the word of God well enough that you can be an apologist, that you're willing to tell people what you've learned from scripture and to expect opposition, especially from the religious community, to be controlled by the spirit, not your own sinful flesh, and to be willing to die and live for your savior. So make sure that you know the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of the Christian religion embraced around the world that really isn't even biblical, but the true message of the gospel, that all are wicked sinners in a lost state. All need forgiveness. That's why Jesus bore the wrath of God for sin on the cross in place of sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful early history of the, the church. And from this day, persecution broke out in the church and nothing was ever the same for the infant church. Lord, I thank you for including the testimony of Stephen. Lord, I pray that we would learn from his life. Amen.